Let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 25, verse 44. Leviticus 25 and verse 44. And today we're going to tackle the big topic of slavery. We're looking at using the law lawfully, as Paul told Timothy, the law is good if a man use it lawfully. So we're going to look at how to use the law lawfully as Gentile believers. Let's see what in the Old Testament law applies to us, if any, and if it applies to us, how it applies to us. So today we're looking at slavery, Leviticus 25. Let's read verses 44 down through verse 46, and then we'll get started. Both thy bondmen and thy bondmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are around about you. Of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which they begat in your land, and they shall be your possession. And ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you, to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondmen forever. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule one over another with rigor. Okay, and so here we have uh, what most people point to as an example of slavery in the Bible. And it doesn't exactly correlate with the type of slavery that we had in America. And we're going to look at why it doesn't here in just a minute. But let's review just a little bit, including this passage the Jews were allowed to have three types of unpaid servants. And we've talked about the two other types in previous lessons. Uh, first of all, they, they were allowed to purchase the service of other Jews who sold themselves to pay off a debt. So if a Jewish man has a debt, he can't pay it, he can sell himself into servitude, and he becomes a servant for a maximum of six years. And during that six years' time, he serves another master, the master provides all of his food and his belongings. He serves him and, and does whatever work he is asked to do. Uh, at the end of that six years, he's set free. He no longer owes a debt. He goes back to his inheritance, his land. And uh, he's also given gifts at the end of his term of service by his master to give him gifts and gratitude for the work. Okay, that, that's the first type of unpaid servant that is recognized in the Bible that the Jews were allowed to have. The second type was that any Jew could choose to voluntarily become a bond servant. So the Jew has served his master for however many years, say six years, his term of service is up, and he's about to be released, and he says, you know what, I really enjoy working for this master. Uh, he's provided good things for me. The example in the Bible is that maybe the master has provided for him to have a wife and a family, and so he's very appreciative for this master, and he decides, I want to serve this master for the rest of my life. And he can voluntarily become a bond servant. Bond servants are different from the other servants in that they are not set free at the end of the six years, but they continue to serve their master for life. So those are the first two. And then here we see the third one, and that is that the Jews were allowed to buy bond servants from among the heathen around them and from among the foreigners who lived among them. And so we're not talking about servants here that are set free at the end of every six-year uh, period of service. These are servants that are servants for life. 
that they were not to be Jews, they were to be bought among or bought from the heathen. So they were heathen servants or foreigners uh, that were living among the Jews. So you can see here in this passage what we'll focus on uh, for the first part here that uh, for the heathen and foreign servants they did not have that right of limited servitude that the Jewish servants had. Um, however, and this is where it differs from what most people think of as slavery, uh, very few people follow the, the whole concept of slavery throughout the, whole, the entire Old Testament. Uh, they usually pick a verse and they focus on that verse and say, okay, the Bible is uh, endorsing slavery. And they don't look at what the Bible commands regarding uh, servants. But one of the main things I want to look at today is that a heathen or foreigner who was a servant, and thus therefore he's a bond servant, he's not, he has no right to be set free at the, the end of six years of service, he could at any time become a Jew and would thereby obtain the right of limited servitude. Well, let's go to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 42. So, so long as this man is a heathen or a foreigner, he does not have a right to be set free at the end of six years. But he could at any time become a Jew, and once he became a Jew, then he had that right of being set free at the end of six years of service. We can see this concept of foreigners and heathens becoming Jews mentioned in Exodus 12, verses 42 through 48. This is speaking of the Passover, and in speaking of the Passover, it says, It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And the Lord said, so it is to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. So no foreigner is allowed to eat of the Passover. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and an hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one ha house it shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Okay, so here we have, uh, this is the naturalization law for Israel. And we'll actually cover this again when we get to another commandment. But this is the law for naturalization of foreigners to become Jews. All they had to do was to keep the Passover, well, first of all, become circumcised, if they were males, and then to keep the Passover. That was the, the citizenship requirement for the people of Israel. So anyone, any stranger or foreigner, uh, if he desired to partake of the Passover, he had to become circumcised, and then at that point, he's no longer considered a foreign-born person. But from that point on, he is legally the same as one born in the land. 
Thus, any man who became circumcised and kept the Passover became a Jewish citizen, and thus he would obtain all the rights which were guaranteed to the Jews by the law. Now, that's a bit of a contentious claim that anyone could become a Jewish citizen. Uh, there aren't many scholars right now that, that hold to that. There are some. Uh, in fact, there's several places in, in Jewish literature and Jewish scholars that, that mention this. Uh, but there's not very many Christian scholars that hold to this idea. But we can see some examples of this in Scripture. Let's turn to Exodus, or not Exodus, Esther chapter 8. So Esther chapter 8. <clears throat> now you know the story of Esther. She is, uh, this is during the Babylonian captivity, so she is, is captured and uh, she goes and becomes, basically becomes the queen, the, the wife of the king. Uh, the emperor and the Haman, of course, is wanting to kill all the Jews, and he sets up this day and gets the king's permission to set up this day for the Jews to be killed. And Esther goes before the king, and after a pretty lengthy process, she gets permission for the Jews to fight back. And so the Jews do that, and the Jews are victorious, and etc. So. In the midst of this, we see in Esther chapter 8, verse number 17, this commandment has gone out from the king about the Jews being able to fight back. And it says, And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. So here we have all these heathen people in the land of Babylon, they have decided they want to become Jews. And so they do. And so many people of the land became Jews. So this idea that foreigner and heathens could become Jews is recognized here in Esther chapter 8, verse 17. Let's also go to Ezra chapter 6. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 6. And verse number 20. Now, of course, Ezra is uh, taking place after the Babylonian captivity. The Jews are returning to the land. Uh, they are rebuilding the temple, reinstituting uh, the sacrifices and the, the keeping of the law. And uh, Ezra was a, a scribe who was teaching the, the children of Israel what the law was. So here we find in Ezra chapter 6, in the midst of all the children of Israel coming back, and restoring temple worship in Jerusalem. So Ezra 6 and verse 20, For the priests and the Levites were purified together, all of them were pure, and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity, and for their brethren the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel which were come again out of captivity, and all such has separated, or as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land, to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat. So here we have Israel coming back. They've reinstituted the Passover. They're partaking of the Passover now. And then God says there's also many around them that separated themselves from the filthiness of the heathen of the land and separated themselves from that to God, and they were allowed to eat as well. Okay, and so here we have another example of these people being naturalized and becoming Jews and being able to partake of the Passover which was specifically 
a covenant between God and the Jewish people. And then we can see in the New Testament, let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 and verse 15. Even the Pharisees, you know, these are supposed to be the, the Jewish of the Jewish people. You know, these are the, the cream of the crop. Uh, the Pharisees themselves sought to take people who were foreigners and make them Jews. And we see that here in Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye can pass sea and land to make one proselyte. Now, proselyte is someone who has become Jewish, someone that's no longer a Gentile. They've now become a Jew. Uh, so he says that the scribes and Pharisees tried very hard to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Referring to their false doctrines. Okay, and then we can go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse number 5. <clears throat> Acts 6, verse number 5. This is the choosing of the deacons and the church. And the saying, please the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, or Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And so he's referred to as a proselyte, that is a Gentile who has become a Jew. So here we have another proselyte uh, example. And then Acts 8.27 is probably the most famous uh, proselyte in all the Bible. Acts chapter 8, verse number 27. This is speaking of Philip. It says, And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. And the people that come to Jerusalem to worship, those are the Jews. And so this man from Ethiopia was a proselyte who was coming to who had become a Jew and now was coming to Jerusalem to worship, most likely in one of the feasts that were taking place in Jerusalem. Okay, so we have several examples through Scripture of Gentiles becoming Jews. People that were once heathens and foreigners now becoming Jewish citizens. And so if they are now become Jewish citizens and they are as mentioned in Exodus 12, they are as one born in the land. So they're the same as any other Jewish citizen. Uh, that would mean that all the rights of Jewish citizens now become theirs, and so they would now have that right to a limited servitude. So their servitude uh, did not have to be that of a bond servant that was lifelong. They could at any time become a Jewish citizen, and from that point on, they had that right of only serving for six years, or of choosing to continue as a bond servant. Okay, so those are the three types of servants, or of uh, unpaid servitude, that are recognized in the Bible. You have the, the Jews that uh, were purchased in order to pay off one of their debts. They could sell themselves into uh, servitude for a maximum of six years. You have the Jews who voluntarily became bond servants, and so they were servants for life voluntarily. 
And then you had the foreigners who were bought as bond servants, as servants for life. But they could at any time choose to become Jewish citizens and thus limit their term of servitude. Now, there's two other points we want to focus on when we talk about this concept of slavery or servitude in the Bible. Uh, the first one we looked at recently, just a, I think it was two weeks ago, and that is that the personal injury laws regarding servants applied to all three types of servants. There is no limit in the personal injury law regarding servants, saying this only applies to Jewish servants. It, it just says servants entirely, you know, in, in their entirety. So the personal injury laws applied to all three types of servants. And under the personal injury laws, a bond servant or any servant who received irreparable harm from his master was immediately set free. So if he received harm to a body part that could not be replaced, uh, a tooth knocked out, an eye put out, a hand cut off, something like that. If he received that kind of harm from his master, he was immediately set free. And that applied to all three types. That means that that would also apply to the Gentile bond servants who were to be servants for life. Once they received that type of harm, they were set free from their master. And then the other one, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 15. This is the primary distinction between the slavery in the Old Testament and what we think of as slavery here in America. When we think of slavery, we think of uh, the white masters having their black slaves on the plantations and uh, forcing them to work and all that. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we're going to be in verse 13. Um, sorry, verse 15. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 15. Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto thee. He shall dwell with thee, even among you, in that place which he shall choose, in one of thy gates, where it liketh him best. Thou shalt not oppress him. And so here we see, under the Old Testament law, runaway servants could not be returned to their masters. So at any time, any servant who did not like the way his master was treating him, he could just leave that master and go wherever he wanted. And he was protected Throughout all of Israel, he was protected from being returned to his master. So this, in essence, made all servitude within the borders of Israel voluntary. Because if you didn't like your master, you just leave. And once you left your master, you were free. You could dwell wherever you wanted. You could live wherever you wanted, do whatever you wanted to do. You were free once you leave your master. So it did, it did two things. First of all, it guaranteed that uh, all servitude in Israel was voluntary because they could leave anytime they wanted. And then secondly, this potential for losing dissatisfied servants would have forced all the masters in Israel to treat their servants well. Because your servant is someone that you, you paid for. And if you're buying someone that's a bond servant, you're looking for a lifelong service, uh, you're probably going to pay quite a bit for that. Uh, because the person selling it realizes, hey, this, this guy's going to give you a lifetime service that's worth a lot of money. You need to pay me a lot of money. So you know, it's very expensive to purchase servants. Uh, if you're buying a Jewish servant, you're paying off all of his debts. He may have a lot of debts. And you're paying off all those debts in order to, to get six years of service from him. Uh, so getting a servant that was expensive, uh, no businessman is going to 
going to buy a, an expensive servant and then mistreat him and have him leave you know, within a couple months. And you know, now, now you've lost all that money that you've invested. So they're going to treat their servants well and treat them kindly. So when looking at the Old Testament servitude and unpaid servitude in the Old Testament, that's the most important thing to remember is that all servitude in the Old Testament was voluntary. The servant could leave any time he wanted to. He did not have to stay with his master. And in fact, if he left, the other Jews were prohibited from returning him to his master. So that's, you're, referring to, you're referring to servitude in the nation of Israel. Yes, in the nation of Israel. Of course, outside the nation of Israel, you have whatever law for that other nation applied. But within the nation of Israel, uh, all servitude was voluntary. Right, so I wonder that's, if the ones that were working off the debt, did they still owe the debt? I, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I would assume not, because the assumption would be that the master is mistreating them. Because all throughout the, the Old Testament statements about uh, Jewish servitude to other Jews, it's all about how good that relationship is going to be. How much the servant's going to benefit at the end because he receives the gifts, he has his debt paid off, uh, how much the master is going to benefit because the Bible says that, that the Jewish servant's going to be worth a double hired hand to him. So if he hired a Gentile to do the work, having a Jewish servant that he's paid the debt for is going to be uh, more valuable than having two Gentiles that he's hired. Uh, and so it's, it's beneficial both ways. God guaranteed it would be beneficial both ways. And so it it seems like it was more of a, uh, uh, since everyone benefited from it, it seems like it was very honorable and a point of honor to stay uh, with the master. I could be mistaken on that, but that's just how it looks to me. person, though. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have... a couple of years and say, I'm out of here. Right. You're going to have unscrupulous people, all that, you know, no matter what society you're looking at, you know, criminals also, but... God usually takes care of them when when the law can't. So you, you don't really have to worry about that. And you know, as long as you're following the law and you're doing what God wants you to do, he's already promised to bless you. As far as the Jews being in the land, God promised to if they would serve him and do him, he would give them you know, showers of blessings upon them. You know, that that was a, a promise that he made to them. So they they didn't have to worry about runaway slaves. Uh, damaging their their profits or hurting their their income as long as they were serving god treating their slaves right serving their, their servants right god would bless them and they wouldn't have to worry about it uh, but you know i'm sure there were cases where there were servants that ran away when they shouldn't have they should have stayed there they did so unethically but the law to protect them still applied they still couldn't be returned to their master all right so that's the old testament command Excuse me. Uh, let's look at a New Testament application of this. The first thing we see when we look to the New Testament is that the laws of servitude in the Old Testament have no direct application to modern Gentile believers because we're not in Israel. Uh, we're not within the boundaries of Israel. So none of this applies to us. Now, if Israel were to set up... <coughs> excuse me. If Israel were to set up another government, run it according to the Old Testament law, 
then this law would apply to anyone who happened to be within the borders of Israel, but it still wouldn't apply to us as Gentile believers here in America. So this was just a law that God set up for Israel in the nation of Israel, uh, just part of their civil government. However, it does provide us with a good example of what I would refer to as ethical servitude. Uh, ethical servitude by this example would be servitude that is voluntary, servitude that recognizes that a servant has the same human rights as every other member of society, as based on the personal injury laws that are in the Bible for servants, and then recognize or requires kind treatment of service, servants. So you have those three things, voluntary, with uh, human rights, so the servants are not property, they have the same human rights as anyone else, and then requiring the masters to treat their servants well. So according to this example that we see of servitude in the Bible, American slavery was unethical, not biblical, and should have been eliminated at the earliest opportunity, which is what the founders tried to do uh, with uh, allowing Congress to pass a law prohibiting the slave trade, which they did uh, just as soon as they could, and then continued to fight against slavery until he ended up with the Civil War. Now, you could say that they should have uh, got rid of it right then with the Constitution, made it uh, outlawed then. Yes and no, I think they should have, but the difficulty of accomplishing that was pretty high because they already had slavery. They, it was already inherited from when they were uh, British colonies. So what they did is they worked out a way to phase it out within a generation. Uh, it didn't quite work out the way they planned it, but that was the plan, to phase it out within a generation, and uh, that would allow them to, to get rid of jail. We have laws, it's just... Right. Yes, we. We have laws out there, but we just can't enforce. Right. Yeah, we have we have some good laws. For example, on in Alabama right now, abortion is still against the law. I can't get anyone to enforce it, but that's that's still that that's good that abortion is against the law in Alabama. Well, you know, it hasn't worked out too well to uh, prosecute for that just yet. Although there is a case coming up, uh, will be filed next year attempting to do just that, but a civil challenge to abortion rather than criminal. But anyway, that's aside from the point. Um, but yeah, American slavery would not fit the ethical model of servitude that we find in the Bible. Now, another thing that we see as far as a New Testament application here, uh, and it's not so much an application as it is a confirmation of this idea in the Old Testament, and that is that the concept of voluntary servitude is repeated frequently throughout the New Testament uh, in a spiritual context. Let's go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. <clears throat> Romans 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And so we have this dichotomy. You're either going to be a servant of sin or you're going to be a servant of righteousness. And whichever one you are is dependent on which one you yield yourself to. 
that idea of you being able to choose who your master is, that you yield yourself to this person and or this entity of sin, and now he's your master, or you yield yourself to this entity of righteousness, and now righteousness is your master, that comes directly from the Jewish principle of voluntary servitude. You get to choose whether or not to be under that master. No one is forced to be under sin. No one is forced to live a life of sin. They do that because they choose to live a life of sin. No one's forced to live a, a life of righteousness. You only live a life of righteousness if you choose to live a life of righteousness. And so you have that, that dichotomy between being a servant of sin and a servant of righteousness. That's all based on the idea of voluntary servitude. And that's repeated multiple times all throughout the New Testament. And then another thing about servitude that we see in the New Testament is that this concept of not returning a servant to his master is also found in the New Testament, most famously in Philemon. Let's turn to Philemon chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter. Turn to Philemon, and we'll look at verse 15. Now, Philemon was a believer. He had a slave, and I don't know for sure if the slave... Uh, if this all took place in Israel or if this was in a Gentile province. I'm not entirely sure where Philemon lived at the time, which law system he would have been under. Uh, even if he'd been in Israel, he's still going to be under some Roman law at this time. Uh, I haven't looked into all the extent for all that. But it's it's still a good example of this concept. All right. Philemon, Philemon chapter... 1 verse 15, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that's his slave Onesimus, perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldst receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Okay, so here we have a, a slave Onesimus who has run away from his master Philemon, uh, Onesimus is a lost man. He meets Paul. Paul presents the gospel to him. He accepts Christ as his Savior. And then Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And a lot of people look at that and say, see, again, this is the Bible supporting uh, the concept of America's runaway slave law, that slaves have to be returned to their masters. Well, no, because Paul did not return Onesimus to Philemon as a servant. He returned him as a brother. He said, I'm, I'm sending him back to you, not as a servant, but I'm sending him back to you as a brother in Christ. Receive him as a brother, and receive him as if it would, he was myself, as if he was me. And so again, again we see this example of uh, this concept of returning a servant, not returning a servant to his master. Even in the New Testament, where perhaps under Roman law he had to return him, but he told him, He's no longer a servant. He's now a brother. And Onesimus sent, was sent back willingly. You can read the thing to see that. There's no uh, force here where Onesimus had to, to go back. Uh, but rather, he was going back willingly. Uh, he would have stayed and served Paul uh, in Philemon instead. But he decided to go back, at Paul's suggestion, to go back and serve Philemon and help him instead of Paul. All right, any comments or questions on those very quickly? <coughs> no, because he had to be allowed to live within the gates of whatever city he chose. 
No, because he's allowed to live uh, in the gates. It's allowed to reside within the gates. So if he if he's caught and brought back, um, he's no longer allowed to being allowed to live in the gates where he chooses. No, I wouldn't say it was the same as that. Um, you can, let's see. Go back to Deuteronomy. Let's see. In that place which he shall choose, where it liketh him best, and then thou shalt not oppress him, would be the the place where I would look at there. So he can't be oppressed and forced back into to servitude. All right. Anything else? All right. Well, let's go ahead and be dismissed in prayer. Uh, Russell, why don't you pray for us today? <clears throat> Father, thank you for